Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast, our first episode since the season has begun. The purpose of this podcast is to provide diverse and thoughtful perspectives on interesting baseball topics. Most of what we talk about focuses on analytics or defense, sometimes a mix of both. Please rate and review us and help spread the word. We'll air weekly on Thursdays throughout the season. We know that there are many sources from which you can get information about the Marlins coronavirus situation, so we're going to do something else. We'll head west and talk to a couple of the sharpest baseball minds we know among MLB beat writers. We're joined by Cardinals beat writer Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Pedro Mora, who covers the Dodgers for The Athletic. All right, Derek, besides only having Zoom access to players and the manager post-game, what's been the oddest thing about covering the team so far? I think, uh, you know, it's just getting used to kind of a new rhythm of it. Um, you know, if you were to ask me that at covering, say, the home games or the summer camp, um, you know, the summer camp was just a lot different as far as timing, right? We're used to spring training or the preseason things, and, um, you know, those are in the morning or maybe there's a night game, but then you work all afternoon. There were times at summer camp where it would be like, all right, off to the ballpark at 6 o'clock. And, you know, by the time it's done, you're staring down a, a 20 minute deadline, a 25 minute deadline, you know, a limit as to when you can be in the press box, sometimes writing outside the ballpark. Um, so all those things, I think it just took like some adjustment after so many years of having this kind of set rhythm to things. And, you know, the same is true on the road. You know, I'm trying to figure out you can't do the usual stuff that you do on the road, whether that's, you know, where you go to eat or where you go to walk or where you go to work out or flying flying. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm driving. So yeah. Or where I go to go through TSA. It's just uh, so there's a lot of rhythm aspects to it that are, are different. Um, and that's probably like the inside baseball answer, but that also applies to like the games, right? Like, you know, you, you when you, when you cover sports, at least me, um, when I've covered sports for, you know, I guess as long as I have, I'm supposed to say, um, you can read what's happening somewhat in the game by the reaction of the crowd. Okay. And why that matters is because you're going to have to write and you'll have to write on deadline. And that means averting your eyes from the game. But when I was covering hockey and I'd have to write a running game story or baseball, and I'd have to run a running game story, you can catch what's happening in the game by the swell or reaction of the crowd. You can, you can hear it before you have to look up and see it. Uh, that, that's not happening. Um, that, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not. And so that, that aspect, and again, back to the rhythm is different too, because, you know, riding on deadline when you, when you normally could avert your eyes and count on the, the fans to clue you in when, when something amazing was about to happen or, or was in the process of happening. No. So, you know, I, I think that's, those are the things that stand out. Um, you know, the, the mask and the, the safety protocols and everything. That's, that's what they, uh, Mike Schilt had a good name for it. He said it's the abnormal normal. That's, that's what it is. It's just, it's the norm, uh, long lines and lots of safety checks and lots of questions about, you know, taking my temperature constantly, that kind of stuff. Sounds crazy, but uh, we're glad that you're uh, able to do it and able to do it, uh, I guess, as safely as you can. So what should we make of this team? There are a couple of things that, that struck me as interesting. One, that they didn't really make much of a move to replace Marcelo Zuna. Now they're a little thin at starter with Miles Michael as out for the year. Uh, and they went uh, for an interesting decision at the very last minute as their closer. Uh, mm -hmm. This doesn't seem like the normal 
cardinal way, so to speak. What should we make of them? It, no, I agree with you. I, I uh, you know, I have a colleague, Ben Fredrickson, and he and I do a podcast there at stltoday.com. And, and I, I was like, you know, this is like such a, such a switch for them because usually they, they, they take the path of least resistance and, you know, it's, it's a to B is they might go through a lot of drama. They might do some misdirection, but in the end they, uh, tend to take the, the path that's in front of them as opposed to one that's, that's more creative. And, um, here they are with Kim and that, that, you know, they, the Wong Young Kim, they signed out of the KBO. 12 years in the KBO, 2018's, um, I believe 2018's, maybe 2019, um, pitcher of the year over there, a starter through and through. His save opportunities, he has no regular season saves in the KBO. Um, he has a save that closed out a championship, but that was in the 13th inning of a game, and he had started in that series. So, um, you know, his save experience is minimal. Um, his starter experience is a lot, and his regimen is a lot. It wasn't like he pitched poorly. That's the thing. He pitched really well, especially, you know, way back in spring training. But he also continued. He moved to St. Louis because he didn't want to go to South Korea. I mean, you know, quarantine there. And, and he stayed in St. Louis, struck up a friendship with Adam Wainwright, um, and pitched this entire he – done, he, did, he had done a lot of things to assert himself as a good starter candidate. And then they kind of switcherooed. Um, they'd wanted to get Carlos Martinez in the rotation. He had really worked hard and pitched well to do it. So – you know, they wanted to follow through on the challenge that they gave him. They, you know, they felt like if they set out the requirements for him to be a starter and he did meet all of them, it wasn't going to work if they just said, well, hey, you know, thanks for trying. Um, let's move you back to the bullpen. So you're right. Um, the decision not to replace Marcel Azuna is a little bit more, no, it's a lot more cardinal than that one. Um, you know, they, they saw what Marcelo Zuna did, you know, they gave him a deed on the cleanup spot. Um, there was a lot of other hitters who produced better in the cleanup spot. Um, Marcelo Zuna had two fine years here. Um, he was not the, the punch in the middle of the lineup that they really sought. Um, so they think that they can get that 800, 850 OPS from elsewhere and they want to give their young guys a, a, a chance at it, you know, that, that they hadn't really had before Tyler O'Neill. Um, you know, previous times that he was going to get some, some starts in a row, he got injured. Um, you know, Lane Thomas really same kind of thing was just about ready to get a lot of run in center field and they got hurt. Um, so they want to see these young guys play and they sort of want to delay the inevitable that Dylan Carlson will be here eventually. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big test for the offense considering it was the worst of the 10 playoff teams last year and they've subtracted the cleanup hitter from it. Um, but they think as a group out of a committee, they can get that 800, 850 OPS that they did not get from Azuna. Is there a stat that you're uh, watching uh, about this team, um, maybe from the point prior to the season starting? Not, not something like basic, like number of home runs or, or something oh, like no. that. Oh, <laughs> no. I was going to totally go basic. Um, no, uh, <laughs> let's see. That's a great question. Let's see. Um, is there, I mean, I, oh, see, so there's two questions here. So yeah. like one is like my what, what personal stat do I like to look at? Sure. Uh, a, a couple that stand out is, you know, I, I do like to look at run differential. Everybody does, right? Sure. Um, I also like to look at, from for this particular Cardinals team, I also like to look at their slugging. Um, you know, I just, I think overall this has been a team that hasn't done a lot of damage. Um, and so I, and I, you know, when I say slugging, I mean like the stats related to slugging too. Like, you know, you can use slugging as a, as a gateway to like the, the more fancier analytics or look, but you know, just along that Avenue of slugging is like, okay, so what kind of damage are they doing? Um, you know, I think if you were to add, you know, like, um, 
I don't know if it's a stat. Um, I guess it is because we count it. Um, but one that is like tangible um, and you can keep with just like hash marks in your scorebook, right, is, is how many times Paul Goldschmidt comes up with a runner on base. I think, you know, so much of the question about this team is based around what they can do consistently offensively and can they be better there. I still think even with the absence of Michaelis, this is a pretty strong pitching team if they start utilizing their depth maybe. Um, and they're going to continue to talk about how they do that. Kim could be a starter by the end of the week, um, for example. But I think, you know, the question that follows the Cardinals and the question that is, is, is you know, prominent for them because they're such a good run prevention team is will they ever be able to be a run generation team to aid that run prevention or is the pitching and defense just going to walk this tightrope the entire season? Um, you know, all 60 games of it. And to, to that end, if they want to become a more consistent offensive team where they really lacked last year, Mark was getting runners on base in front of Paul Goldschmidt, um, the leadoff spot and the number two spot just were below league average and in whatever number you want to go with, but let's pick on base percentage and the Paul Goldschmidt, you know, batted third for a team that won the division. And, you know, I, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but I believe 512 players had more at bats with runners in scoring position. I kid. It's not, but it, it's, <laughs> Goldschmidt is tied for 75th. It was alarming how, how few opportunities Paul Goldschmidt had with runners in scoring position. Of course, that changes everything for him. Um, it changes how teams can pitch to him. It changes how often he's on base. And then we get back to the cleanup spot with a chance to drive him in. I mean, there's just a lot that that revolves around. So like, as far as the stat goes, and actually, I mean, I keep track of it anyways, but you know, we're four games in when we're talking about this and I am marking down and keeping track of like, okay, um, Paul Goldschmidt, you know, how often is he really getting a chance to, to produce? Um, and then also the question is how often does he do that? You mentioned uh, Goldschmidt. I think he's integral as well to the defensive side. And we, we generally have a consensus here that the Dodgers are the best defensive team in baseball, but the Cardinals mm -hmm. have aspects in which they can give them a run for their money. Why do you think this team is so good defensively? So I think it's the work that they put into it. Um, I think Paul DeYoung specifically has really taken the challenge of being an everyday shortstop. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who just some background. I don't know if you know too much about his background as a shortstop. He was a third baseman in the minors um, at double A. They had a couple injuries and they had this idea that maybe they can move him over there and sort of hold the position for a stretch, you know, before somebody was promoted or somebody got healthy or anything like that. And he just never really gave it up. Um, he just, they were like, wait a minute, they can, we didn't know that he could play there, but he could. A manager really stumped for him and said, I got an idea. I think, I think he can do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's moving up through the ranks as a shortstop. Um, he's, he's worked on his body type too. He's made himself more agile. He's very much a student of the game. Um, and then for all of the infielders, um, it helps that, like, as you mentioned, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, I mean, they just two years ago, the Cardinals had um, 20 airs at first base, you know, that's absurd. And they went from having 20 airs at first base to Paul Goldschmidt, who probably saved more than 20 airs in throws from his, uh, um, you know, from his, from his teammates out there. The, 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 the thing was at spring training when Paul Goldschmidt was there the first time, um, you know, Colton Wong has been very, very forward about his want to win a gold glove and his desire to do that. He felt for a long time 
that he could be an elite defensive player. Um, again, has really worked on it. We really see that. And uh, the thing when Paul Goldschmidt's first spring training was that, okay, this is the year that Colton's going to win a gold glove because now he has somebody beside him who's going to help him. And he's already got the attention as an elite. Um, you know, the metrics adore him. Um, it's a matter of changing the mind of the voters. And, and they did that. Um, so all that goes to the, the kind of just how much of a focus those two, but everybody as a group has had. Um, that's under the tutelage of Jose Akendo. Uh, they also have, in the past two, two and a half years, um, embraced shifting. Mark, they, they've had some sure you've seen the numbers. Mm-hmm. They went from um, not being very much of a shifting team, um, even sometimes to our befuddlement, even sometimes to very awkward exchanges with the former manager um, about why, like, they didn't shift against Anthony Rizzo. They were the only team in the division that did not shift against Anthony Rizzo. And it was like, why, why, like, what is, what, what, what do you know that the other teams don't? Do you really think that, like, do you really think that your, your decision is all that much better than the other teams in the division who do this professionally? And that, that was like the question that I asked and um, maybe even in that tone. And, you know, it, it all just came back to, or it seemed to come back to the fact that he stole a couple bunts against them. And so it made them a little shy to shift. And, you know, um, they've done that more aggressively. Uh, a year ago, they shifted more than the previous three years combined. I think it was some kind of one of those numbers. And so their positioning is um, excellent. And that is done in cooperation with the analytics department, which has made this, you know, part of the priority. And it's, uh, you know, done with a uh, bench coach, Ali Marmol, who has um, been a constant companion of Jose Akendo for spring trainings as far you know for years now um and marmol has really been a huge part of putting together along with stubby clap the first base coach um putting together these these um laminated sheets that they take out in their pockets and coordinate um uh you know co- coordinate the the shifting and, and they put it on a number scale which I, or a number line which i think is interesting a lot of teams do that um but it gives an integer just to where they should line up and so they have the work ethic, they have the, you know, the analytics, um, and they have the willingness now. And those are the three things that really create, and they have the athleticism, um, which they prioritize. And those are the three things or the four things that really create the robust offense or robust defense that the Cardinals have. And it goes back to something you touched on earlier is the Cardinal way that they've kind of re, um, visited that notion that they should be a good defensive team because when they're at their best, they are a run prevention team. If you're going to talk defense, amazingly, you got through that whole uh, comment without bringing up uh, potentially the most important person to that defense, at least historically, uh, and that's uh, yeah, uh, Yachty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two, two, uh, two last questions here. One is, uh, is just on him. What's the current state of Yadier Molina? Yadier Molina, he came into summer camp, um, I mean, svelte. I mean, he, he, uh, he continues to you know, keep weight off and keep strong and um, stay limber, um, looked really good. It seemed like... Um, the time away, you know, he, he worked obviously. Um, but he just came in with, uh, with a, a real bounce, um, you know, that is sometimes not there in the, in July or August, um, because of how many innings he's caught. Um, he wants to play another two years. He looks good at the plate too. Um, just seems to have found himself a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago as a hitter, um, not constantly switching things around, not constantly um, trying to do different things, but really just in rhythm and, um, you know, aware, just a, a guy who's comfortable um, 
comfortable in everything that he does in baseball. And yeah, I mean, he's part of that defense too. You know, if he sees something, he has the license to change things. Um, he's definitely part of the run prevention because, um, I mean, whether it's, we saw him pick a runner off at first base the other day, and that's something that we hadn't seen for several years. That, that definitely is a product of having Goldschmidt there and not the, um, committee of first baseman that followed, uh, uh, Albert Pujols. It used to be something that Molina and Pujols did all the time. Um, you know, Goldschmidt did it the other day, you know, teams, very few teams just run, they don't run on Yachty. So it's, it's like, you know, somebody, somebody once told me that like, well, he doesn't throw many people out. That's why he doesn't get the gold glove. It's like, nobody tries. Like there are whole, there are teams, there are teams that don't even try, um, to, to run against him. So how often is he going to get that chance? Um, he's just, he is in every way, the soul of the Cardinals. Um, this is, this is his era and, uh, you know, like I said, he wants to play two more years. He said he wants to be with the Cardinals um, to do that. His contract runs up at the end of this year. It's um, it's an odd time for that to happen for obvious reasons. So, you know, um, short season revenue down. What are they going to do with their payroll? But also, what is he willing to to do to stay? Um, because that that contract, you know, he's making twenty million this year. I don't think that the Cardinals are going to match that next year um, or want to. And they have a young guy like Andrew Kisner, who they who they do want to get more playing time. 16% chance to win the division, according to Fangraphs. 44% chance not to make the playoffs, according to Fangraphs. Really? Yeah. G- give me a scenario by which uh, they defy the odds, I guess, so to speak, and do make That's, the playoffs. With, a, with an 18 field, it's 44 chance. Wow. 56 to huh. make it, 44 to not. Wow, that's an interesting one. I guess that speaks to how bunched up the central is because the spread is probably between like 27 wins and 33 wins. They're all probably within that narrow bandwidth. Yep. yep. Cubs yeah. 87, Brewers 62, Cardinals 56, Reds 51. Okay, so I will answer your question. Can you answer one for me? Yeah. Why does that model adore the Cubs? Um, probably like, I know that like, I don't want to ask a cliche question, but I'm fascinated by the Cubs. Like, I, I, I I think they could be good, but I also think like they, they probably have the widest spectrum of outcomes for this season. Right. And I, I I think, well, I think if you look at their stars and their stars performing at the, at a high end level, it's probably evaluating Mm. Rizzo and Baez at a very high end. It's evaluating you Darvish probably a little higher maybe than he should be. It's evaluating John Lester and Kimbrell probably a little higher than they should be based on their Oh, good call. Kind of paths. Um, and the Cubs do have some things that they're pretty good at. Um, they're good defensively, certainly at, at first base and shortstop. Uh, Contreras is one of the better offensive catchers in baseball. So I, I think uh, it's it's there. It's it's interesting uh, that to hear a, a, another writer's perspective on it. Uh, but yeah, they, the the Fangraphs projection system very very much likes the Cardinal, the Cubs rather. They're the second highest uh, playoff projected team in the National League. That's interesting. Well, I my rule of thumb, and I when we do these like predictions, is to follow the pitching. That's just like okay, how do I? Because we have to do predictions every year, and and they're wrong the moment we put them to paper. Um, but so how do you kind of like come up with a a, a, a a way you're comfortable doing it. So I tend to follow the pitching and I, I think, you know, I, 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 fa- I lean more towards the Cardinals depth at pitching. Now, obviously, you know, that's been tested by injury and by their decisions, 
but you know, I still saw them as having the greater depth of any team when it came to pitching. And I think the Reds have a sneaky good pitching staff on um, their starting staff really came together last year. And that was a missing component for the Reds for year after year, after year, after year, after year, it's just that they did not have um, the, the, the pitching that they needed uh, to contend. Um, I think their offense, obviously with the addition of Castellanos and Moustakas, I mean, they, they are vastly improved. And um, I would have thought that maybe they um, tickled the Sims so to speak, and, and really um, got the uh, got the attention of, uh, of having a high uh, percentage of making the playoffs. I think you know to answer your question, you know, if you know, like the Cardinals, so it's it's, it's a I, I really appreciate your answer because it does kind of capture what the Cardinals are. The Cardinals are a team that are greater than the sum of their parts, and you know, I, I still think that like I'm, I'm eager for the metrics to catch up with Paul DeYoung in some ways, um, you know, there, there seems to be because of elements of his game, there seems to be this, this thought that he can't, that he won't change as a hitter. And yet we've seen him change as a hitter, um, in the same way that he changed from third base to shortstop. And so I'm, I'm eager to see how that plays out. Um, you know, the numbers probably are, are, are conservative on Matt Carpenter and that's entirely fair. Um, because the, the, the question is, can he have a bounce back? If he has a bounce back, then the Cardinals are that much better. But overall, if they're going to contend, they, they have to be this better than the sum of their parts and really tap into that pitching depth and find offense somewhere. Um, you know, if the way it doesn't work at all is if they just don't get any offense. If the if the outfield is is a is a wasteland of production, then they just won't have enough offense to to support even the strength of their pitching staff and they'll they'll lag behind um i think that there's less of a chance of that happening than 44 percent but um especially with eight ways into the let me put it this especially with eight ways into the playoffs now and 10 of the cardinals games a full sixth of their games are against the royals and the tigers so i think we cannot like overlook that and that doesn't end then 20. So a third of their games are against the pirates, the Royals and the tigers. Um, look, if they cannot come out of those series with substantial amount of wins to support a playoff berth, then they don't belong in the biggest playoff pool ever. Indeed. Uh, all right, Derek. Well, I mean, that's, take- look, think about that. That's 20 games. Like what could they go in those 20? Yeah. Could they go 15 and five? Right? Well, that's in- 15 and five. In fairness, everyone in the division has that too. No, they don't. Oh, okay. They don't. Yeah, they don't have the Royals. You're right. They don't have the Royals. They don't have the Royals. They right. Don't have the, the Reds the, have the, the Indians. Four against the Tigers. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, so you know, like I know that everybody else has ten against the Pirates. That that makes yep. entire sense. But, um, but the ten against the Royals and the Tigers. That's like a that's that that seems to matter. So if you go seven and three in those, and say you go seven and three and against the Pirates, right? Yep. That's not unreasonable for a good team right that's 14 and six that's 14 on your way to as the models need or as the models say that's 14 on your way to needing 30 30 31 basically yeah yeah 31 to get in the playoffs so i mean wow all right Derek gold thanks for taking the time to join us uh appreciate your coverage look forward to reading it this year thanks for having me mark it's a pleasure to talk to you You can check Derek out at the Post-Dispatch, and he hosts a podcast, the best podcast in baseball, as he noted. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Pedro Mora is a senior writer for The Athletic covering the Los Angeles Dodgers. He 
He also hosts a podcast for The Athletic, The Scribes of Summer, with Andy McCullough. Before joining The Athletic, he spent five years writing about both Los Angeles baseball teams at the Orange County Register and Los Angeles Times. All right, so we talked to Derek Gould, and he's had to endure some odd stuff so far. Uh, What have you seen this season in trying to cover the team, and what challenges have you had to uh, face in covering the team that have been, uh, well, I guess, a little odd or a lot odd? That's a good question. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I I certainly would want to preface this with saying that these challenges are are incredibly small compared to so many others that so many other people in this country and in this world are facing. Mine are, you know, like the most trivial of all time. They're like that I don't linger in the clubhouse for an hour before each game and, and just wait for the player I'm hoping to talk to. Um, and, and hope to get, you know, 10 minutes with him. I don't have that. I'm at home. I'm doing interviews by zoom with groups. Um, so that's the challenge. The challenge is that you don't have the, the individual time with players, but I, I get that that's so small. And, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning to, to enjoy watching baseball from home, you know, still somewhat skeptical about how long this will happen, you know, the circumstances, the risks, but presented with this with baseball i'm trying to you know cover it as as i have before except that from home and watching it on television and enjoying the television view which is a lot better than a lot of ball from a lot of ballpark press boxes in this country so uh there's you know there's good parts you know um people (laughs) seem to care people seem to definitely care um the first series the dodgers played against the giants was really not did not have energy it lacked energy entirely um, and in my natural reaction was to attribute that to the lot to the absence of fans, but their first night in Houston, I think things, things changed. It was a little more fiery, it was a little more entertaining. Um, and so perhaps we'll see more of that going forward. Yeah, certainly with the uh, Joe Kelly suspension uh, and all that happened with that and all that could happen the rest of the series with that. So, all right, I want to go back to the first series. The the Dodgers went two and two, despite being a better team in just about every facet. In fact, here at SIS, we track uh, defensive misplays in addition to errors. And the defensive misplays tally in that series was 15 for the Giants and four for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers had more first pitch hits. The Dodgers, uh, the Giants did very little off the Dodgers' bullpen. Craziness. And yet they only went two and two. What should we make of their their little early uh, hiccup there? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I could issue a correction, you said, you said just a, the Dodgers are superior in just about every way. And I yeah. would just go full, full stop. I mean, in every way, period. Yes. Like there's no, I, I mean, I'm not aware of any way. I mean, that team, you know, I, I believe the Giants will be good eventually. In fact, I might, I think they might be the next team to eventually win this division, but they just don't have it. I mean, right now, I mean, there's a lot of players in there that have no experience at the big league level whatsoever that had, you know, serious flaws in, in, in the, the minor league in double a triple a so yeah absolutely i'm, I'm with you that like the, the, <laughs> the talent disparity is just incredibly sizable and that said yeah it was it was, a, it was a split series obviously the dodgers outscored them by i think you know 12 runs and if you you know even even with the lackluster baseball the dodgers play i still think if they if they play at that level over 20 games with the giants they're probably going to win you know 12 to 14 maybe 15 something like that but no it wasn't exactly an encouraging start and and a question about the misplays that you cited. So when you say 15 to four, does that include errors? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, the, so it's so the errors plus play, other things. 
So the Dodgers only had a few uh, the, after the, when they began their season with a Corey Seager misplay, right? And then after yep. that, it, they were pretty sharp defensively thereafter. Yes, and, and that includes things like um, Yastrzemski had a ball go off his glove trying to make a catch, like a tough catch. Uh, we count that because if the ball hits your glove, you, <laughs> in theory, you could have caught it. Um, so that's that's part of the tally. 15 to 4, as I said. All right, so with, with, with that push to the side, is there a, a stat for the season beyond the basic things that we would cover, like batting average or run scored or whatever, that you're particularly curious to see how the Dodgers fare in a 60-game season? Let's see. I think it's going to have to be the Dodgers issue. Uh, the reason they haven't won at least one World Series, arguably multiple World Series, I think is because of their, their lack of hitting and pressure situations in the playoffs. And I'm not even saying that that's you know, a product of their talent. It, it, it might, might very well be a, a simple randomness issue, right? I mean, it, as we all know, the postseason is so short. It's only going to be more of a problem this year if they get there. And, but heretofore, like the Dodgers in the playoffs have just not hit, right? So I think one reason they acquired Mookie Betts is they believe he is the type of player whose talent plays really well in a, in a, in a pressure filled environment where you just want to put the ball into play. So I think all that is an extended preamble to get to. I think I'd like to see, I'd be curious to see what their batting average will be like in, 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 um, in what do you call it? Run, runners in scoring position situations, high leverage situations, that sort of thing. Are they able to limit strikeouts when they need to push runs across? Um, I think they will be, you know, this is an incredibly talented lineup, outrageously, almost offensively talented lineup one through nine. I don't think it's going to be a problem, but it, as we all know, 60 games, you know, 55 from here on, there's been, you know, what did Alan Craig hit in 162 with runners in scoring position? There could be, and then the next year, there can always yep. be these random samples of, 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 our, of, of awfulness or, or greatness. You know, we don't know what to expect. So that might, that might tell us how the Dodgers are performing. Are they able to get runs across when they need to? You just wrote a piece on uh, Mookie Betts and Mookie Betts' approach uh, to playing baseball uh, that I thought was uh, particularly interesting. Uh, Hit the high points for us uh, in uh, 30 seconds or so, and maybe give us something about Mookie in particular that impresses you. Sure, yeah. So, um, the high points. Mookie Betts is uh, good, you know, really good. He, uh, (laughs) He got good by learning from an early age that uh, he needed to focus harder than his competitors in order to beat them. You know, his family, he comes from a deeply competitive family. And so since he, since he was five, he's been, he's been competing at every, you know, task, every sport. And there's 10 plus, you know, that he he has learned to dominate at, and he's been doing it. And now 22 years later at 27, he's the arguably second best player in baseball. As far as what, what I think is particularly, to me, interesting about him, I find it that his, his lack of fidgeting in, in any situation, whether it's in the field, uh, at the plate, you know, when, when, when there's a boring part of a game and the, and the TV broadcast is cutting between every Dodgers uh, position player, you'll notice every time that, like, Corey Seager will be moving around, moving his legs, fidgeting, touching his glove, and Mookie Betts will just be standing there doing nothing. <laughs> just looking. <laughs> and um, when you realize that this is a consistent thing, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, it's, it's trivial, but I, I kind of marvel at it every time so far. I watched the game on uh, Tuesday night for a couple of innings. And the first thing that happened when I put on my TV was Justin Turner got an opposite field hit. Uh, and he just has turned into this hitting machine that always seems to uh, find a way to get hits and get hits uh, in large quantities. Why is he still so good? Yeah. What a hitter, right? Um, 
why is he still so good? I, I guess he has merged, you, you know, the the lifelong talent for for putting the ball in play he had with a, with a new newfound power that he found around age thirty, with you know some launch angle changes that I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard about. So the two of them enables him to be really a fearsome hitter because when you know he he is seeking to hit for extra bases with with one and no strikes, but when two strikes come around, he is still really hard to strike out. And really hard, he just he is going to put the ball in play almost all of the time, and so pitchers just struggle to to deal with him. I think even even you know, even pitchers with great stuff struggle to retire him for three times in in a game. He it just it so rarely happens. He is the rare, one of the you know there's probably 10, 15 hitters in baseball who have that ability of contact and power that he has, and the, and the ability to switch between them interchangeably. With all the hitters on this team, uh, whose plate patience are you most impressed with? Because it seems like they've all got that. Yeah, maybe Max Muncy. Um, and he's kind of an unconventional twist because he does strike out a fair amount. But it, it, uh, the Dodgers are all, have been, really, for the last couple of years, always impressed with, even in his many slumps, with his ability to take pitches. It, it does not he, – he so rarely – like gets himself into trouble by swinging at the first two pitches of that of that bat, like say Corey Seager does. Uh, Muncy's just a he's a, he really demonstrates a consistent approach, I think, to to an at bat that or a plate appearance, I should say, and that's why he works, you know, two hundred and thirty walks and strikeouts in the last couple of years each. The the versatility of uh, someone like him, the versatility of someone like uh, Kike Hernandez, the versatility of someone like Bellinger even, and even Mookie Betts, who was an infielder before converting to outfield, uh, is such an impressive thing about uh, the way that this Dodgers team is composed. And their defense is so um, standout at just about every spot. Are there things that you've found in talking to their players about the way that this team plays defense that are particularly interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think, you know, I have to confess that my, my attention with the team, I think, as I'm sure you can understand, is, is more about the offense and the, quantifi- the easily quantifiable to the naked eye things, yep. right? What, what, as reporters, we're kind of deficient, I think, in general about covering defense as, as it deserves to be. But I think what we do see, you know, the, the, the versatility is easy to see to plain eye, right? Like I, I, I spent a lot of time in 2018 covering Cody Bellinger's really unusual switching between first base and center field. You know, I think he, I, I wrote it back then, but I think he was one of the, fir- the first player in 20 years to play as many games at both positions. You know, how many, how many times, Mark, do you see a guy who plays first and center, right? It just right. <laughs> in my lifetime, I think it's only Nick Swisher. Uh, and that was on the A's, <laughs> if I recall. Yep. Um, so it's just that sort of stuff really really catches your eye when you have players switch between positions so fluidly when you have austin barnes just casually go to second base in the eighth inning of a game you know he's, he's a catcher <laughs> and that happened they did it you know probably 10 times last year when you have um even your you know max muncie can play third second and first fairly interchangeably his second base defense improved pretty significantly last year i think just the willingness that you you really don't know what position a player is going to be playing on a, on a day <laughs> when, you're, when you're covering this team right like if they start cody bellinger at first tomorrow i wouldn't be that surprised they did it in summer camp it might happen so that's i, I guess that's how it resonates most with me if you had to take a guess on the ERA of Clayton Kershaw and the number of saves for Kenley Jansen this season, what would you say those numbers would be? Kershaw, I'll go uh, three three one. Okay. Um, I would have gone a little bit lower before he had he he got hurt to to start the season. With saves for Kenley, 
you know, I think I think the Dodgers are going to beat up on some bad teams in a way that may not enable that many save opportunities. I'll go, I'll go like nine, not too many. Yeah. <laughs> and is all right. Then with that, are both of those guys going to be able to get through the season healthy? You would think, um, you know, it's, it's so hard to predict these injuries, right? Clayton Kershaw was looked great throughout spring training, the initial one, and then summer camp. And then the morning of, you know, the, the season opener, it, it broke that he was, he was hurt. Um, he, he might start pretty soon here, but anytime you have a pitcher unable to start the first game of the season, you have to be concerned. Kenley Jansen had COVID-19, um, experienced symptoms, recovered, and now is, um, I think, pitching pretty well so far from what we've seen. Um, and you know, injuries with him haven't been a significant part of his past. Um, but if, if he can get motion on the cutter, if he can get significant movement, uh, I think he'll be fine. I don't know that I expect him to be like a, I don't expect him to be what he was until the 2017 world series, you know, basically the best closer in baseball, but yep. I expect him to be per- pretty good. All right. So staying, staying with pitching here, the unheralded Dodgers pitcher this season will will be a standout in some way will be blank fill in the blank i can go a couple different ways with this um blake trinan i guess is probably my um would be i think the best answer i think the dodgers need beyond jansen they need more great relievers to to really win anything significant here they to to win the world series they need more dominant guys they can trust blake trinan looked great in his first game um obviously we all know what he did in 2018 one of the most dominant release seasons of all time if he can replicate anything close to that you know this this team is is suddenly in great shape and if they don't have a a a trusty seventh or eighth inning guy then all of a sudden i think they're um in much more tenuous shape beyond that some of their young starters like the prospects josiah gray might be asked to make a start here pretty soon you know he hasn't been pitching for very long hasn't been a dodger for very long but looks really promising according to scouts i've I know who've seen a pitch. And so maybe someone like that, you know, someone that has never pitched before. Two more questions for Pedro. What's the reason that the Dodgers wouldn't win the division by at least five games? I think, unfortunately, uh, if, if that is going to happen, <laughs> you would think you, you would fear that, that there would be some sort of, Ill, you know, outbreak of illnesses on the team, honestly, like in, in, from a true talent basis, you know, this team should win by seven to eight games, I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Eh, I mean, they could win by four and still be reasonably healthy if the Padres or Diamondbacks go on a run. Yep. I don't know. I mean, I expected them to win by fifteen plus in a normal season. Right. But five, you know, four or five wouldn't be the wouldn't be the most outrageous number. But I would think you have to have some weird stuff happen in order for this team not to not to win this division by at least a couple games. I I, I don't know. Um, do, does any other team have the talent in the West? I just don't see it. I see. I see too many flaws on the Padres and the Diamondbacks, and the other teams are not even really trying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I wrote the question, I, I wrote it in a couple of different ways. I included a, a version of the question was, uh, what's the 4% in the Fangraphs 96% that they make the playoffs? What is the yeah. 4% <laughs> like? But I, I put it, take I was COVID. That too. Yeah, I was going to say, take yeah. COVID, put it, put it aside. What's the 4% scenario for the Dodgers to not be one of the t- Top eight teams in the National League. I just don't see it. I don't see it yeah. at all. That seems right. blatantly impossible. I mean, they could be the fourth place team in the National League West and still make it. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Uh, Pedro, thanks for taking the time to join us. You can check uh, Pedro out at The Athletic, both his writing and his podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. This is a weird year for a lot of things. It's an especially weird year for predictions, but I'm going to try to pick my MVDs for 2020. 
my most valuable defenders. If I was playing in a defensive run-save fantasy league, and I am, Matt Chapman is the easiest first pick I could ever make. He led all players with 34 runs saved last season. Maybe he's not twice as good as any other third baseman, but it's close. Chapman is my choice in the American League, especially with the knowledge that 21st century wizard Antleton Simmons is already on the disabled list. The player most positioned to challenge Chapman for ALMVD honors is Kevin Kiermeyer. Though now surrounded by two very good corner outfielders in Manny Margot and Hunter Renfro, that may mean that Kiermeyer won't have to make as many spectacular plays as usual. And on the other end of the field, we can't forget about the great all-around game of Indians catcher Roberto Perez. In the NL, I view this as a three-person race between Mookie Betts, Javier Baez, and Nolan Arenado. Betts' numbers have come down a little bit, but an early look from his first series against the Giants showed that he'll handle Dodger Stadium in the right field corner just fine. Javier Baez has blossomed into a fantastic defensive player, maybe the most fun watch in the game right now. And Nolan Arenado brings years of reliability and solid run-save totals that should shine through in a short season. Some sleeper picks, Francisco Lindor and Aaron Judge in the AL, Harrison Bader in the National League. I know, no Bellinger, no Kane. There's other guys you could say that about too. And this wraps up this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. For Derek Gould, Pedro Mora, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.